You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 8. Hello, and welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. For those who may be hearing this show for the first time, welcome! I'm Chris Lester, your host. I'm best known for the Parsec Award-winning Metamore City podcast, which ran from 2007 through 2010. You can find all the episodes of that show at metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-City.com. Metamore City is a world that blends urban fantasy with elements of noir and science fiction. I hope you'll check it out if you're not already a fan. This week, though, I'm bringing you a story that is not in the world of Metamore City. This one is set in our world, our history, with one important addition— There are superheroes, and there have been for a long time. So long, in fact, that some of them are well into their retirement years. But what kind of nursing home can safely care for aging superheroes? That's the premise behind the new Elysian Springs world setting created by Lauren Scribe Harris. I joined a group of about 17 other authors to create stories set in Elysian Springs— and on July 1st, 2015, we're launching a Kickstarter to fund the publication of an anthology set in this universe and edited by Scribe. This Kickstarter will allow us to pay the authors, the editors, and the artists, and to print and ship the first set of books. I'll put a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes as soon as it goes live. Today, I'm proud to bring you the first part of my Elysian Spring story, Flying Free. A word of warning about this story... A lot of it takes place in flashbacks to the mid-20th century, and it involves both African-American and LGBT characters. If you know anything about the last century in America, you know that racism and homophobia have been deep, serious problems here. And this story delves into those issues. Some of the language the characters use is accurate to the period, but would not be considered appropriate today. I have done some careful editing to this story to avoid the most hurtful and inflammatory slurs that were in use at that time, but there is still some language in this story that is not appropriate for children, and listener discretion is advised. Now then, let's get on to the story. Flying Free An Elysian Springs Story by Chris Lester. June, 2015. Elias King cradled his morning coffee in his lap as the orderly wheeled him out onto the patio behind his housing unit. It was a lovely morning in early June, and the hint of humidity clinging to the air promised a sweltering day to come. For now, though, the dew still hung heavy on the irises and lilies. The sun was just peeking over the horizon and the grounds of Elysian Springs were largely empty of people. These were the times he liked best, when things were quiet and the world seemed fresh and new. "'Will there be anything else, Colonel?' the orderly asked. Elias smiled up at the young man. "'I have everything I need right here,' he said, raising his cup of coffee in both hands. "'Thank you, Chester.' "'You're very welcome, sir. I'll come back to check on you in an hour.' Elias sat and sipped his coffee, listening to the birds, watching the sun's rays slowly creep across the grounds. 
The swallows were out in force today, swooping and diving low over the grassy lawns to catch bugs still weighed down by the dew. Later in the day, if the weather stayed fair, the insects would fly higher, and the swallows would follow them. But if a storm was blowing in, the birds and the bugs would stay low. It was his father who had taught him about swallows, back when he was first teaching him how to fly. A good pilot don't need weathermen to tell him what the sky gonna do, Pa said. You just keep your eyes on the world around you, boy. Mother Nature know the future better than we ever will. The sunlight reached the patio, and Elias soaked up the warmth on his rich brown skin. He looked up at the blue skies through half-lidded eyes. A swallow corkscrewed past directly overhead, and he let out a small sigh. Then the quiet was shattered by the sound of thrusters at the edge of the compound. Their roar sent the birds bolting in all directions, as two gleaming metal men streaked up from behind a line of trees and into the sky. Elysian Springs' perimeter defenses must have picked up an incoming bogey and dispatched two of the drones to intercept. Elias tracked their flight paths, and as he squinted through the morning sunlight, he could make out two small dots approaching from the horizon. April, 1948 All right, where's the wonder kid? The colonel had arrived at the king's farm with three cars full of men, all in the dress blues of the recently created United States Air Force. He was a lean man and hard, his face ravaged with old burn scars. His skin was dark for a white man, deeply tanned, and it made his eyes look like two chips of ice set in stone. He entered the hangar while Elias was up to his elbows in the Piper Cub's engine. Pa King walked alongside him, his hat in his hands, and his head bowed in deference. "'This here's him, sir,' Pa said. "'This my boy, Elias.' Elias hastily wiped his hands on his shop rag, and then stood up straight beside his aircraft. The colonel stalked over and looked down at him, eyes narrowed in speculation. "'Kind of scrawny, isn't he?' the colonel said to no one in particular." Elias squared his shoulders and tried to think tall thoughts. The colonel locked eyes with him. You know who I am, boy? Elias gave a stiff nod. Colonel Douglas Pierce, U.S. Air Force, sir. Colonel Pierce grunted. Jim Harvey told you I was coming? Yes, sir. The colonel scratched his chin thoughtfully. Harvey says you impressed him. That's not an easy thing to do, son. He gestured up at the plane. This your cub? It's my pa, sir. We use it to dust the crops. But you fly it? Yes, sir. And do the maintenance, too, I see. Yes, sir. Colonel Pierce spent a couple of minutes inspecting the cub's engine in silence. At last he gave a grunt of satisfaction. How'd you like to fly something flashier than this, Elias? Elias's eyes went wide. Like an F-80? Pierce barked a laugh. No, son. I've got something a little different in mind. June 2015 Sixty seconds after launch, the drones split wide and curved around the bogies in a pincer's maneuver. One of the little dots broke and flew higher in a tight, narrow spiral, flying steeper and changing directions faster than most jet fighters could manage. The drones, with their humanoid profile and thousands of hidden control surfaces, 
had an easier time keeping up. Elias saw flashes of light arc out from the bogey, lightning and a clear blue sky. The drones swerved and dodged to avoid the blasts, but did not fire back with their pulse cannons. Instead, they swooped ever closer to the bogey in a dramatic aerial dance, apparently trying to make physical contact. The second bogey, evidently forgotten, dove low and came in less than ten feet from the treetops, making a beeline for the Elysian Springs campus. Elias kept waiting for the other defenses to engage, but they were strangely silent. When the figure touched down in the middle of the gardens, Elias finally understood why. It was another figure of polished metal, like the drones, but this one was covered in a striking paint job, russet brown on the arms and legs, a brown triangle stretching point down across the chest, a brown mask-like slash across the helmet at visor height, and everything else in gleaming, brilliant white. The visor turned toward him, and the photoreceptors glowed with a fiery orange light. It was an updated version of a suit Elias had known very well most of a lifetime ago. Osprey? he asked, scarcely believing his aged eyes. The visor opened, revealing an elegant, handsome white woman with a strong jaw, silver-white hair, and proud gray eyes. Hello, Blackhawk, she said. It's been a long time. September 1957 Blackhawk? Elias looked skeptically at the latest version of the power suit, the first one he would wear in public. Up until now, each of the prototypes had been either unpainted metal or an unassuming desert camo, the better to blend into the surroundings at the top-secret Nevada test site. This model, though, was a glossy enameled black, with accents of red, white, and blue. You know Blackhawk was an Indian, right? I think I'd gathered that, Colonel Pierce said dryly, on account of my beloved Chicago hockey team has a big old Indian head for a mascot. Elias touched one of the gauntlets, imagining his hand inside it. Why does it have to be black anything? Why can't I just be the hawk? Pierce's blue eyes glinted. You think you're going to be inside that armor forever, son? When Eagle Flight is deployed, the whole world's going to see you. These suits are going to send the commies running for the hills. And once you're out there, sooner or later you're going to have to pop that helmet. When that day comes, do you want your country thinking you were scared to admit you're a Negro? Elias said nothing. Reflexively, he lowered his head, as he'd learned to do among white men his whole life. Lift up that goddamned head of yours and look at me. Pierce snarled. Elias clenched his jaw, drew a deep breath, and forced himself to look Pierce in the eye. Pierce held his gaze, nodding slowly. Good, he said softly. Now you listen to me. This country's had its head up its ass for too long. I know Jim Harvey. I've served with Ben Davis and Chappie James, all damned fine men and damned fine pilots. But if any one of them were to walk down the wrong street in Mississippi, he'd be hanging from a tree by sundown. We've got the goddamned Russians running over half the planet, and Chairman Mao looking to grab the other half, and we're throwing away good men because their skin ain't the right color. I can't tell if we're suicidal or just a pack of morons. Elias swallowed the lump in his throat. But, sir, President Truman desegregated the service before you ever recruited me. There's a lot of Negro airmen now. 
and they've all been safely diluted through the white service, Pierce said. Harvey and Chappie and the others, they've been scattered to the winds. They'll never have the prominence they did as the Tuskegee Airmen. The Red Tails made the world sit up and take notice. They showed what the black man was capable of. America needs a symbol like that now. We need a Negro American hero to remind those slack-jawed yokels that we're all in the same team. Pierce clamped a hand on Elias's shoulder. Buck up, son. You won't be alone out there. Eagle Flight's going to make history, and you're going to stand up right alongside all the rest of us. I look after my own. Despite himself, Elias smiled. Now come on, Pierce said. We've got a new team member joining us today. I want you two to meet. Elias followed Pierce out of the hangar and into his jeep. They drove down the long access road to the main guardhouse, kicking up a plume of dust behind them. At the gate, an Air Force supply truck waited under the watchful eyes of a couple of MPs. The guards saluted to Colonel Pierce and Elias as they approached, then opened the gates. A tall blonde woman stepped down from the truck, dressed in a khaki Air Force summer uniform. She looked to be a few years younger than Elias, nineteen or twenty at the most, but there was a strength about her that belied her youth. She raised a strong chin and saluted the colonel. Second Lieutenant Barbara Vallett reporting for duty, sir, she said. Colonel Pierce returned the salute. Lieutenant Vallett, welcome to the Eagle's Nest. He gestured to Elias. This is First Lieutenant Elias King, one of your fellow pilots in the Eagle Flight program. Pierce grinned. Codename Blackhawk. Elias stifled the urge to roll his eyes and offered his hand to Vallett. Pleased to meet you, miss. He glanced over at Pierce, raised an eyebrow, then looked back at the woman. Fellow pilot, eh? Pierce looked smug. Vallett comes to us from the Air Force Reserves, trained by Jacqueline Cochran herself. Jackie told me it would be a damned waste to leave her there. Vallett inclined her head toward Pierce at this, graciously accepting the praise. Elias couldn't help but think how much more dignified it looked than his own reflexive head-ducking. So here I am, she said. Codename's Osprey. It's a pleasure to meet you, Blackhawk. June 2015 Barbara pushed Elias's chair down the garden path, her power suit clanking with every step. It must have looked absurd, but nobody was around to see it. Well, that wasn't quite true. Elias was sure the guards must be watching through the closed-circuit cameras. But so far, they had made no move to interfere. And for that, Elias was grateful. Another crack of thunder split the clear skies overhead. Is that Valkyrie up there? Elias asked. He already knew the answer, of course, so he added, She gonna come down and say hello? In a while, Barbara said. She wanted to give us some privacy. And besides, she likes playing with your toys. Elias chuckled. Not my toys. Not anymore. Barbara looked up at the sky, smiling. You should try getting back in a suit. It's amazing what they're doing with neural interfaces these days. The birds had returned to the garden now. Elias watched one of them fly past and felt a stab of pain. But it was an old pain, with a lot of layers of callus lying over it. He changed the subject. That suit of yours does look impressive. I wonder why the drones didn't tag you as a threat. Oh, this is just a parade model, Barbara said. Princess Victoria had it made for me, for state functions and the like. 
It doesn't have any weapons. Elias grinned and shook his head. You know, you could have called ahead. Barbara's face abruptly sobered. I wasn't sure you'd see me. The last time we parted ways, I said some things that weren't very kind. Elias reached up and placed a hand on one of her armored gauntlets. Girl, you didn't say anything I haven't told myself a hundred times over. I should be the one apologizing, not you. There was a loud boom and scattered pieces of drone rained down just outside the borders of the compound. She's not much for subtlety, is she? Elias asked. No, Barbara said fondly. But then she never was. September, 1960 Blackhawk, on your six, break left. Blackhawk snatched a quick look over his shoulder. One of Dr. Defiler's bionic monsters had swooped in about a hundred yards off his tail. It looked like a mutant pterodactyl with a jet pack, and it left a bloom of black smoke behind it. Menacing, but inefficient, he thought. Then again, that could have been Dr. Defiler's motto. A volley of small rockets streaked out from two pods beneath the monster's wings, heading straight for him. Blackhawk turned left and dove sharply, but not so tight that the creature couldn't follow him. It closed in on his six, jaws open in a screech that Blackhawk couldn't hear right now over the roar of his own thrusters. Guns, guns, guns! A stream of pulse cannon fire cut through the sky, missing Blackhawk's feet by only a couple of yards. The monster flew straight into that barrage of death and spiraled out of the sky, its crippled engines belching a huge cloud of smoke. Splash hostile, Osprey shouted. She waggled her fingers at Blackhawk as she flew past. He swooped around and came up high on her six, swapping the positions they'd been in a moment earlier. Iron Eagle's voice came over the comm. Blackhawk, eyeball. Wilco. Blackhawk went higher in a broad, spiraling path, looking for any more of Dr. Defiler's creatures. The clouds parted for a moment and he spotted six more of the pterodactyl things coming up from the mountain fortress below. Tally six hostiles, bearing one nine four, range two, coming in low. Copy, Blackhawk, Iron Eagle said. Falcon and Shrike, go to one nine four and engage. Blackhawk's comm squawked on the channel used for command and control. Eagle Flight, this is C2. New picture. Connie has contact on bogey. Bearing 1-5, range 15, angels 10. No IFF response. Blackhawk scanned the sky in the indicated direction, but he couldn't see the unidentified aircraft. No joy, C2. Bogey has minimal cross-section, CNC said. Possible cape. Just what we need, Blackhawk thought sourly. A superhuman sticking his nose in our mission. We're doing just fine, thanks. Iron Eagle, split for bogey? Osprey asked. Affirmative, Iron Eagle said. Blackhawk, cover Osprey. Wilco, Blackhawk said, and swooped back into wingman position behind her. It took less than a minute before they spotted the bogey. A single humanoid figure with a broad white cape and a winged helmet. The afternoon light glinted off the figure's chainmail armor, and a long spear shone with light as the figure held it point-first in one hand. The bogey flew through the sky at incredible speed, two hundred knots at least, 
and with no apparent means of propulsion. Tally one cape, C2, Osprey said. Target has no radio. I'm going to try my strobes for visual signaling. Roger, Osprey. Proceed. Brilliant white signaling lamps started flashing on Osprey's shoulders and helmet as she tapped out a message in Morse code. N-A-T-O, pause. P-L-Z, pause. I-D. The caped figure slowed its approach, then waved for Osprey to come alongside. She did so, coming up on the cape's left and matching its speed. They flew in formation for maybe thirty seconds, barely three feet from each other. Blackhawk stayed at least a hundred yards off and a few hundred feet above them, watching for any more bogies or hostiles. Osprey continued sending messages with her signal lights, since at this speed there was no other way she could communicate. The speed flattened her arms to her sides, limiting hand gestures, and her face was hidden behind her visor, so mouthing words was out of the question. The cape seemed unfazed by the speed, and gestured freely with its hands despite the incredible force of the air rushing past. Blackhawk wondered if that spear somehow shielded the one carrying it when he or she was in flight. After a minute they were back in the combat zone, and the cape waved at Osprey in a shooing motion. She flashed her lights once in acknowledgement, and then rolled off to the left. Eagle Flight, be advised that Cape is friendly, Osprey said. She's about to engage hostiles with Fox 5. That made Blackhawk curious in spite of himself. Fox 5 was Air Force parlance for any airborne attack using superhuman abilities, something that didn't fit the usual concepts of missiles and guns. He looked down at the cape and saw that the spear was glowing more brightly, a globe of light massing around the tip. All units, break off, Iron Eagle commanded. The power-suited warriors of Eagle Flight peeled off in all directions, blasting away from Dr. Defiler's castle at maximum thrust. The pterodactyl monsters couldn't match them for speed in a straight run, so they broke off pursuit and circled over their master's castle, waiting for the next attack. They got more than they had bargained for. A blast of lightning shot out from the tip of the spear into the center of the enemy formation. It arced out to each of the hostiles, triggering half a dozen nearly simultaneous explosions from the monster's fuel packs. They screamed as they fell to earth. C2, this is Iron Eagle, Iron Eagle said. Sight has been sanitized. He sounded as odd as Blackhawk felt. Confirmed, Iron Eagle, C&C said. Detecting no additional hostiles. You are cleared to advance on primary objective. Wilco, C2. Eagle Flight, land on the North Tower. Watch out for Sam's. Shrike and Falcon went in first, wary of any surface attack, but there was no sign of Dr. Defiler's goons on the rooftop. Iron Eagle landed next, followed by Blackhawk. He looked up and saw Osprey landing, alongside the mystery hero. Blackhawk took his first close look at their new ally. She was tall, even taller than Barbara, with fair skin and eyes of a rich, bottomless blue. Her golden hair came out in a long braid as she removed her winged helmet. Her chainmail armor bore a symbol on its chest, three interlocking triangles in blue and gold. Her spear gleamed with runes covered in gold inlay, runes that still glowed faintly, even in direct sunlight. 
You are Eagle Flight, she said. She spoke English clearly, with the faint continental accent that said she'd learned it in Europe. I have seen you in the newsreels. Welcome to Bavaria. Osprey lifted her visor and smiled at the woman. Thanks for the help. I'm codename Osprey. What should we call you? The woman's smile sparkled like sunrise on the mountains. I am Valkyrie. But why do you come for Dr. Defiler now? He has been here since the Fuhrer fell. Fifteen years. We just found out he has a sponsor in Moscow, Iron Eagle said grimly. If some nut wants to sit up on a mountain and call himself emperor, that's one thing. But when the Reds start sneaking him supplies over the border, we're going to have words. Osprey nodded toward the staircase that led down from the tower roof. Should be a lot more mooks between us and the doctor. Want to join the party? Valkyrie's smile took on some sharp edges. It would be my great pleasure. That night, at a beer hall in Munich, a serving girl sat down half a dozen mugs of ale in the middle of the hero's table. The five pilots of Eagle Flight and Valkyrie took up their drinks and crashed them together in a wordless shout. Splash one more wannabe dictator, said Tom Chow, codename Shrike. So hey, Colonel, when are we going to go after that son of a bitch Mao? Or Khrushchev, asked Gordon Barrett, codename Falcon. <laughs> Easy, boys said Pierce, waving his hand in a settling motion. You know that's the president's call, not mine. Besides, taking out trash like the doctor is one thing. Going behind the Iron Curtain is something else. I don't want any of you kids sharing a cell with Gary Powers. That thought sobered all of them. A long moment passed as each of them stared into their drinks. We send spies through their airspace, Elias said darkly. They sponsor men like the doctor to keep NATO distracted and off-balance. Two giants pussyfooting around the edges of the playground. Let's hope that's all that ever comes to, Barbara said. No, Valkyrie said. Her voice was so sharp that all the members of Eagle Flight looked up at her. Her blue eyes were as hard as sapphires. Half my country is in the hands of those murderers, she growled to say nothing of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Ukraine, a dozen others. This may be la guerre Freud, as the Frenchmen say, but it will never be peace, not until they give back what they have taken from us. Barbara covered Valkyrie's hand with her own, squeezed it gently. You're right, of course. Forgive me, Valkyrie. Zelda, Valkyrie said. She turned and locked eyes with Barbara, her voice at once low and intense. My name is Selda. Barbara stared back, as if hypnotized. Barbara, she murmured. They bade Valkyrie good night in the streets of the Maxverstadt, where two cars from the airbase came to collect them. Elias climbed into the back of the second car and looked back to see Barbara and Valkyrie standing very close together. The German woman leaned in toward Barbara's cheek, on the side away from the cars, and seemed to whisper something in Barbara's ear. Then she stepped back, winked, then turned on her heel and strode briskly away. Barbara stood there for a long time. And that's part one of our story. Tune in next week for part two. 
If you're new to this podcast, one of its purposes, besides bringing you fiction every week, is to keep me accountable for my writing efforts. That's the topic of the next segment, which I call the Weekly Writing Report. My primary goal is to spend an average of an hour a day, six days a week, writing new fiction. My secondary goal is to write at least 350 words every single day, and for that goal I include writing things like scripts for these podcast episodes. I keep track of that secondary goal on The Magic Spreadsheet, which is a shared Google Doc where writers from all over the world report their daily word counts and earn points for writing consistently. You can follow my progress there by going to Google Plus and searching for The Magic Spreadsheet. As of Saturday, when I'm writing this episode, I've gone 33 days without breaking my chain. This week, I started work on a new story in the world of Metamore City. The working title for this story is The Three Graces. It follows some characters that were created for Metamore City by my fellow author and podcaster, Nobilis Reed. He introduced us to Natalie Grace and her father Nathan in his novella Dreams of Change. I was re-listening to that story last week, and I realized that I really wanted to go back and tell the story of their family, especially Nathan's relationship with Natalie's mother. I spent Saturday and Sunday writing an outline, which came to about 1,300 words, and then started writing the story on Monday. So far, I'm up to about 3,600 words on the story itself, and it looks like it's shaping up to be another novella. In total this week, I wrote 4,892 words in 7.75 hours, for an average of 631 words per hour. Not my best week, but definitely not my worst. Now, let's get to some feedback. The feedback this week is on my Metamore City novella, To Walk in Shadow, which aired in episodes 2 through 7 of The Raven and the Writing Desk. Mark Stone writes... I particularly enjoy Ball. He's a very complex anti-hero, whose badness seems to be motivated by grim necessity, which doesn't stop him from also being kind of a jerk. He has fascinating layers, an enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped in bacon, wrapped in earwax with a candy coating dusted in hot pepper, and with a 30% chance of being laced with cyanide. Enjoy! Thanks, Mark. I love that description of Ball. And related to this, I want to bring in the following message from Nobilis. Hi, Chris. It's Nobilis. I've been listening to uh, to Walk in Shadow, and I'm wondering whether or not you've read and or listened to the more recent volumes of the Dresden novels. The reason I mention it is that there seems to be a fair amount of parallel between Ball and the unseelie court in some of the later novels. They are, early on, the unseelie court is very definitely a villain, and as the story progresses over from one novel to the next, it appears that they have a place in creation that only looks evil from the inside. Anyways, I don't want to spoil those novels. They're fabulous. And it's certainly commonplace for the same idea to show up in different places. So I'm not saying you're stealing or anything like that. I'm just wondering if you noted the parallel, if you decided it was a good idea and you were going to see what you could do with it or what have you. I mean, it's all valid. But I'm just curious whether that was on your mind with with this particular story. Thanks for a wonderful story. Bye-bye. 
I've always enjoyed the literary character of Lucifer, at least when he's done well. And one of the things that has struck me about him is that he's always serving the plans and purposes of his creator, even when he doesn't realize it. The whole idea of the devil rebelling against God, and leading some kind of nearly equal but opposing army against the forces of good, just doesn't fit with the idea of an omnipotent creator. So if he's allowed to continue operating, he must have some function that he plays in the universe, and exploring that function is where this type of character really becomes interesting. Jim Butcher did this very well, as Nobilis describes, and I'm sure that portrayal has some influence on the way Ball's battle against the underworld got written. But this concept is a lot older than Butcher. One story that was a major influence on To Walk in Shadow is Mer Lafferty's Heaven series, in which the rulers of heaven and hell find themselves in a battle against an ancient cosmic evil that is older than the universe itself. And, of course, Jesus himself spoke of the outer darkness as a realm that was separate from the domain of the devil and his angels. So this is a concept with a lot of history behind it, and that's a big part of what makes it so fun for me to explore. Shea Montgomery says, Hi Chris, I just finished catching up with The Raven and the Writing Desk after my podcatcher decided to unsubscribe from your feed for some reason. I've absolutely loved this last story, and wanted to just send you a message, saying that your own writing has been a huge inspiration for me in my own works. Metamore City came into my life at a time when I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and it's a good chunk of the reason I've decided to pursue writing. Thank you so much. Oh, and was that thing a Shoggoth? That's certainly the feel it gave out. Yes, Shay, the void spawn that Agent Jessup and Xiong Jin do battle with in Part 3b is indeed a Shoggoth, H.P. Lovecraft's infamous gibbering horror from beyond the stars. The world of Metamore Keep and Metamore City has always had an undercurrent of Lovecraftian mythos running through it. From way back in the early days, when Charles Matthias first introduced the concept of the underworld into the setting. When I started thinking of the kind of monster that would represent the Void's real heavy hitters, the Shoggoth was the natural choice. Congrats, Shay, on being the first one to spot it. Hello, Chris. It's Sarah Testarosa again. I listened to the latest part of To Walk in Shadow. Yeah, now I see the purpose of time. I actually was wondering if that was going to be the case, if it was going to be he needed a human sacrifice or at least blood, um, enough blood that would kill her, uh, you know, I figure it's like, okay, well, if she's expendable, then that she's important, but not important enough to, you know, not be sacrificed for the cause, and it makes her talk to Jessup before starting the incantation makes sense. You know, I think she she knows that that's what's going to happen. I think she knew it the minute he said what he needed her to help him do, so that just really does show her dedication to him, and I don't know, it's it's interesting. It just kind of reminds me of those who, you know, go on those missions with an extremely high chance of failure or who go on things where they know that, like, beyond a doubt, even if their mission succeeds, that they are going to die. I feel like it takes so much dedication to be willing to do that. And I feel like it's really, I feel like it's a combination of admirable and stupid because, Yes, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the individual. I mean, that reminds me of the SI Collective, but sometimes, yes, someone has to sacrifice their life. But just that whole idea of the human condition of that way that we 
claw at and like just try to drag ourselves up out of pits to just survive, sacrificing ourselves goes against that. And you know, yes, I know that there's also situations, obviously, where people kill themselves just because of the many, many issues that people can face from mental illness to horrible life situations to the combination of the two. But basically, you know, in general, we are pretty much genetically programmed to survive and to, you know, care about our survival. And we are socially programmed to care about our survival. So just the fact that she's willing to give her life for this and knows that that's what it's going to be, I think that's really cool. Thanks, Sarah. As I said in episode 6, Tara was one of those characters who came into my fiction almost by accident and ended up playing a huge role in the story. In the original concept for this story, I didn't see a way for them to successfully forge a path through to Estherini. I thought the journey through Deep Shadow would be so dangerous and horrifying that Jessup would barely survive it with his sanity intact, because the force that they were up against was so overwhelming. I thought that the mission would fail, and that Kaya would be forced to choose between the lives of the Astari and her reputation for disciplined non-interference in the affairs of other nations. But once Tara was in the picture, I realized how Ball's roads must have been built, and the stage was set for the characters to pay a different sort of price for victory. Ultimately, the personal sacrifice of a willing mortal, laying down her life to save others, felt more powerful and meaningful than the immortal Majestrix losing face in the international community. After all, stories are about people, and when the stakes are high enough, people will do some pretty amazing things. And to provide some more context on Terra and Ball's actions, here's our own Metamore City librarian, Mildred Cady. My first reaction to Tara's death was, holy shit! <laughs> but honestly, I had suspected that the final component of the ritual was going to be sex or sacrifice, leaning towards sacrifice since sex had already been covered previously. And the way that magic works in the universe of Metamore City, to create an anchor point like that has an insanely huge mana cost. To create it with just sex would have probably required more participants than Baal had in the Plane of Shadow, and maybe even in the Material Plane too. I'm not sure that it's actually been covered in a story, so some listeners may have wondered, with all the magic and science around Metamore, why couldn't they just teleport aid into Estherini? Just like how the curse wants to bring an individual back to a specific state, Things from the material plane always move back to its original natural state, including location. The more mana put into the spell, the longer the spell works, but in most cases the spell will eventually dissipate and dissolve, and changing something living costs more than something inert. It is possible to make a spell permanent, but it takes a lot of mana to do it, and some types of magic cost more than others. Conjuration magic in particular is insanely expensive in the first place, and the mana required to make a teleportation spell permanent is beyond the resources of pretty much everyone, including the gods. And that was true before Mariah created the Great Fall. While it looked like the gods were able to teleport, what they were actually doing is what had been asked of Baal use another plane of existence as a shortcut between two points on the material plane. 
When Mirai broke the connection to the axis that linked the heavens and hells to the inner planes, it left just the astral plane and dreamlands and the plane of shadow available for this plane hopping shortcut. I'm assuming that travel through the dreamlands wasn't feasible for this with all the celestials and fiends fighting there, especially for a relief convoy. And when they made the request, the other gods didn't realize just what Baal was up against in the shadow. I'm glad that they do now. And honestly, I had a moment of wanting to smack Kaya over the head for her we can't use this path because it was made with black magic comment. I'm going to chalk up her reaction to shock because she knew that the situation was desperate enough to make a deal with Baal in the first place. And having been the leader of an empire for centuries means she has to understand that sacrifice, even the ultimate sacrifice, sometimes must be made to save others. And I love Richter and Mirai for providing that moment of clear-headedness afterwards. So, history lesson over. I really love what you've done with Xiang. It makes me so happy to see my creation blossom in one of your stories. And got her perfectly. Uh, <laughs> I think the story contains one of the best lines ever from your pen, Chris. I keep my promises, Lightbringer, but I am not nice. I am not good. I am necessary. And until the end of time, I will do what is necessary without hesitation, without apology. And so will those who serve me. Gods, I love that. I'll admit that I have something of a sympathy towards the Daedra Lords and their offspring. And part of that sympathy comes from what I know as the librarian of Metamore City and a writer within the world. Let's just say that the nature versus nurture debate, often shown through characters like Isri Fallen and Janus Starson, resonates with me. It's good to see that even Baal, the epitome of evil, can feel fondness for another and hold a great deep respect, even for those on the opposite side. I think he does respect Jessup at the end. Baal is cold and calculating, but his contracts are a sacred trust that he will uphold. Yes, he uses the needs of his followers, but it's not by fancy or whim, but for something that matters, even if the rest of the universe doesn't realize it. While there is evil without reason in the world of Metamore City, one of the things that makes most of the Daedra Lords fascinating to me is that they do have a reason, even if you don't understand it. This is Mildred, the Metamore City Librarian, signing off. Thanks, Millie. I'm glad you like what I've done with Xiang. She's a great character, and I'm so glad that you added her to my sandbox. I want to address what she said about Kaya and relate it to something Sarah Testarossa sent to me on Twitter. She says, Awesome ending. Love Tara having known what would be expected of her and being willing, and Ball's explanation. Poor Jessup, his pain was so real. I appreciate the declaration that Ball is necessary. His work is important, and though he says he's not nice, slash good, I feel like he does good works. I liked the reveal of him being Siang's father. Aw. It amused me how horrified Kaya was over one human sacrifice to save millions, because that is how things work anyway, in war and law enforcement, you know? Sometimes the end justifies the means. That's true, but it's a truth that Kaya has never been comfortable with. Her purpose for existence, after all, is to protect mortals, and every mortal life is precious to her. And remember, we're not just talking about one mortal life. 
We're talking about all the mortal lives that were willingly sacrificed to create all of Ball's roads, walls, etc. Situations like these are why Kaya needs advisors like Mirai and Richter, who not only have the pragmatism and the mental toughness to make hard decisions, they also have more moral authority to do so than Kaya does, since they are both ex-mortals and understand death in a way that Kaya never can. When they ask someone to make a sacrifice for the greater good, they actually know what they're asking for. Hi, Chris. I'm a longtime listener of the Metamore City podcast and have enjoyed it immensely. I haven't given you feedback before, and I thought it was time that I should do so. I was very psyched to hear you start up Things Unseen after an interminable hiatus. And I was disappointed that you will not be continuing that story in podcast form. I do understand why you chose not to do it. And I have bought the ebook, so I have the rest of the story. I do know that life sometimes decides to hit you upside the head to knock you on your heels. I seem to get one of those whacks every other month or so. So I just wanted to let you know how much I have enjoyed your stories in both formats. I look forward each week to the new podcast. Don't mind me being a greedy bitch and wanting the whole story right now. From your writing progress reports, it seems you have everything back on track. I'm happy to hear it, and I hope it stays that way for you for a very long, enjoyable time. Keep it up, and I will be listening. This is Judy from Central Massachusetts, signing off. Thanks, Judy. Things definitely feel like they're back on track, and I can't tell you how happy it makes me. I love bringing these stories to you all, and it's so much fun to hear your reactions in real time. If you'd like to sound off on the stories, you can send your feedback in text or recorded audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. Recording an MP3 on your smartphone works wonderfully, as you could tell from this episode. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 and then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To discuss the show with other fans, check out the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, or the discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. And don't forget to check out our Kickstarter for Elysian Springs. That'll do it for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>